Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Half Haunted, written by Manly Wade Willman, a spellbinding dark fantasy classic from Weird Tales. Here are the final two adventures of multi-award-winning author of dark fantasy, Manly Wade Willman's Judge Keith Hillary Pursue Vaunt in his battles against occult forces of darkness. The penultimate story describes the terrifying consequences when someone violates the terms of a treaty his township signed with Native Americans, a clause that was intended to protect the settlers from their own heedlessness. In the second Eldritch tale, Judge Pursuivant comes to the aid of a man who asks him, How would you feel if something followed you all around your new home? Something cold and sneaky that wasn't even there when you turned your head? These are followed by a pair of very important Wellman stories. Sin's Doorway features a younger guitarless Silver John, although he is not named. Its nameless protagonist moves into a remote cabin he has inherited, only to discover to his horror it is not truly a house, but something far different. The second is in a way a sequel to the first Judge Pursuivant adventure, The Hairy Ones Shall Dance where he fought a desperate battle against darkest evil in a pine forest called the Devil's Croft by locals. In the Pineys, the Devil's Croft is revealed as the legendary land of the Shinokins. Among Wellman's most popular creations, the Shinokins appear frequently in his John Thunstone stories and the Silver John tales. The Shinokins, or Pine People, are a race of humanoid-like creatures who inhabited the U.S., before the first Homo sapiens crossed the land bridge into the Americas, and they are still enraged by the intrusion. In this story, a group of people find themselves at the end of a road deep in the Devil's Croft and have a deadly confrontation with the Shinokins and the King of the Pine People, in a denouement clearly inspired by a world-famous fantasy story of the era. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The Half-Haunted. Book One, The Dreadful Rabbits There are a hundred things one has to know, which we understand and you don't as yet. I mean passwords and signs and sayings which have power and effect, and plants you carry in your pocket, and verses you repeat and dodges and tricks you practice. All simple enough when you know them, but they've got to be known. Kenneth Graham, The Wind in the Willows At a point about four miles out of Crispinville, a lean-looking rabbit with black and white smudgings on the gray of his ears and hind legs came flopping out on the pavement and paused in full way of the car. Morgan Pitts put on the brakes, drew out a handkerchief and mopped the summer beat from his flushed, seamed brow. He said with casual courtesy, Howdy, Mr. Rabbit! The animal immediately finished its crossing of the road and sat up in a tussock of grass, gazing while Pitt started the car again. 
Judge Keith Hillary Persevant, big and blonde and bespeckled, returned the gaze of those bulging black eyes. They seemed to have a green flash in them. He made no remark, but appeared deeply interested, and he was. He had come all the way to Crispinville for the very purpose of learning about the custom of rabbit greeting. After they rounded a curve and left the little town well out of sight, Judge Persevant ventured his query. How old is that custom of speaking to rabbits, Mr. Pitts? And how did it start? Pitts scratched his grizzled head. He was little and spry-looking, with a face as red as a rooster's comb. Dunno, Judge Percivant. Ain't kept up much on things, been pretty busy with my work. But I guess it's been going on since the year one. He took a hand from the wheel and pointed ahead. There's my place, up yonder, next to Hunger Hill. Your friends rented a room there for you. You and him are my only boarders this summer. A phrase had caught the judge's ear. Hungry Hill, he repeated and gazed at the great green swelling with its thatchy covering of evergreen brush and thicket. It doesn't look hungry. I think that's the old engine name. And there's a cave or pit like an open mouth. The driver broke off. Well, here we are, getting there. The house nestled comfortably at the foot of the big hill, with plump-looking trees around it, a house old and modest but well-built and well-kept, with a stable and barn and rail-enclosed stockpen behind. As the car stopped, someone came out on the porch and waved a long arm, then hurried down to shake hands with Percivant. It was Ransom. He looked much improved in health and spirits since Percivant had last seen him at New York in early spring. The doctors had apparently sent him to the right part of the country to get over his nervous breakdown. He was still gaunt, but there was color in his flat cheeks and sparkle in the dark eyes set deep under the bushy brows. Ransom was forty and looked younger, with a square, shallow jaw and black hair and mustache like curls of astrakhan. I saw your train come in, over yonder along the horizon, he told the judge. And I sat out here to wait for Mr. Pitts to bring you back. Come on, both of you, and have a drink. They followed him into a pleasant front room with ancient flower-figured paper and white-painted woodwork and massive old furniture that was older and better preserved than any of them. Ransom had set out a tray with bottles, glasses, and a bowl of cracked ice. I thought that rabbit legend would fetch you when I wrote to you about it, he said to Percivant. 
collect such things, don't you? Hard to believe, but I've seen the bunny greeted on every road and path in Crispinville Township. Mr. Pitsier told me something about it, said Percivant. Not much, though. Not as much as I'd like to hear. Nobody seems to know much about it, Ransom said, pouring. It's pretty well a local thing. Over in the next county, people hadn't even heard of it. Said I was making it up. There's ice here, gentlemen. Take it or leave it. Take it, said Pitts with relish. Leave it, said Percivant, and not much soda. If you haven't any information, Ransom, you must have a theory. You skeptics always have theories. Ransom poured whiskey and spurted soda into the glasses. Hmm, he said. Might be a Negro thing. This used to be slave territory. One storekeeper in Crispinville thinks it may have come from the first English colonists. Again, it might be Indian, but what keeps it so local? Can't you tell us, Pitts? Not me, said Pitts, his eyes on the dewy glass held out to him. They all drank. Percivant wiped his blonde mustache. His spectacles were full of thoughtful lights. The rabbit's a great figure in folklore, he observed. A witch named Julian Cox was tried in England in the 1660s for turning into a rabbit. And Jules de Grandin once told me that Southern French will turn back from a day's work because a hare hopped across their trail, bad luck, like a black cat. Never heard that, rejoined Ransom. Of course, de Grandin's a fable collector like you. Of course, I read Uncle Remus when I was a boy. Plenty of rabbit stuff there. And I used to carry the left hind foot of a graveyard rabbit for luck, contributed Pitt sipping at his highball. Her savant was also turning over the Uncle Remus tales in his mind. They were impressive and sometimes grim, for all the bright humor of Joel Chandler Harris. Breer Rabbit, seemingly so harmless and plausible, had tricked all the larger and fiercer creatures in self-defense, or for profit, or for mere cruel fun. Hadn't Breer Wolf been deluded into killing his own children? And Breer Fox shunted into a fire, so that all his progeny looked singed down into the present day? Don't you think, Ransom was saying, that you're paying too much attention to a silly little custom, a triviality. Hey, protested Pitts, taking his nose from his glass. It ain't silly when it's a township ordinance. You can't even hunt rabbits. And there are no trivialities in life, as Sherlock Holmes or somebody said, added Percivant. As Mr. Pitts suggests, 
there must be a good reason for making the rule and for observing it as well. Ransom laughed loudly. His own drink had been long and strong, and he was at the bottom of it. Time for me to do some missionary work, said he. Rising, he took two objects from the table. They were the stock and barrels of an excellent shotgun, and they snicked neatly together in his knowing hands. He grinned above the weapons. It's summer, and rabbits aren't fit to eat, but just for the sake of smashing a superstition. And he fed two shells into the double breech. Pitts got up. Better not do it, Mr. Ransom. It's against the law. I'll pay any fine or whatever, laughed Ransom. Percivant also rose and set down his empty glass. I want to go back to town and look into the community records. I'll leave my suitcase and be back before sundown. Shall I run you back in the car? offered Pitts. No, thanks. It's fine weather and lovely country and only four miles. I'll walk. Percivant turned to Ransom. Promise me. You won't go rabbit hunting until I return. Oh, all right. Ransom agreed and stood the gun in a corner. He saw the judge to the door. Crispinville was not the county seat, but Percivant knew that there would be a township trustee, a clerk, and a constable. When he reached the hamlet, he approved once again the well-painted old houses and the quaint little stores with canopy-like arcades jutting out over the wooden sidewalk, admired the square steepled church that dominated all. He estimated that what Pitts called the year one for this community would be well before the middle of the 18th century. There were settlers here before Daniel Boone's time, he thought, and inquired for the home of the township clerk. Finding it, he introduced himself. The clerk was a frail ancient named Simmons, who prided himself on having most of his teeth and needing no spectacles. He was vague about old records and only when Percivant pleaded did he pry into the clutter of files and trunks that jammed a rear room of his house. I've been the Crispinville clerk for forty-four years, he grumbled, and nobody never asked to see them original papers. Huh, they must be in this here oldest chest. The oldest chest was very old indeed, made of unpainted hard wood, from which a covering of rawhide was all but rotted away. Mr. Simmons probed and fiddled in the rusty lock with a brass key that might have gone with Noah's strongbox, once or twice calling on heaven to witness his displeasure that the guards did not turn. But then Percivant stepped to his side, 
and lifted the lid with a creak of the hinges. The lock had never been fastened. Inside lay papers, yellow and dusty, tied into bundles with antediluvian-looking twine. Simmons examined one handful, then another. Yep, these is the old records. Huh, the oldest bunch will be on the bottom, I expect. He dug down and brought up a sheaf. This is what you'll want, Judge. Percivant took the papers, unfastened the string, and carefully unfolded them to avoid breaking at the creases. They were covered with writing in rusty ink. At the head of the first was printed in block letters, crude and archaic, but forceful. Records of ye Town Council of Crispinville, founded yesterday ye 14 June, Anno Regni Georgi Secundo. No, no. The ninth year of the reign of George II. Percivant computed that it would be 1735 when Crispinville was founded as a formal community. The clerk let him carry the documents into the dining room and spread them on the top of the table. The paper on which the records had been written was not of the best, and two centuries had made it brittle and tea-tan. But the first clerk of the township had written fluently and in a good bold hand, with all the underlinings and capitalizations of his age. There was a list of names, with official titles opposite some half-dozen members of that original council. Then as the first item of history, This day we, the chosen council of the town of Crispinville, did pay to certain Indians the price agreed upon for the lands, wherein our company will live and plant and reap. The price was itemized, and Percivant saw that, as usual in such matters, the Indians had all the worst of it. Gaudy cheap cloth, beads, rickety hatchets and knives, one or two muskets and a horn of powder, and certain bottles of raw New England rum. The screed went on, and suddenly Percivant was aware that upon the very threshold of his researches, he had found the origin of the custom he was tracing. The Indians, engaging on their part to respect our rights and boundaries and to keep the peace, asking only that we observe their manner of, as our interpreter putteth, greeting the hare. That is, we shall not hunt hares nor snare them, but upon meeting them salute and bespeak them as apertly as it were a Christian man and not a silly hare. To this last certain of our company did take exception, and notably Captain Scadlock, that such custom was childish and fond, but the chief person of the savages, him they call King Mosh, did bide firm, 
saying that the rabbit was the atodomon of their people and sacred. And further that if we pledged not our word to continue their custom, they would never sell the land, be the price paid ten times over. And finally, the Reverend Mr. Horton, our minister of God, did earnestly pray us to give over, showing that we did have precedent in that the first missionaries to Britain did respect and observe certain festivals and usages of the old heathen. Saying further that right so, as we took pity of these simple Indians, their beliefs, right so would they incline to stand our friends. And so it was agreed upon both sides, we all signing our names, saving only Captain Scadlock, and the matter placed of record and made a rule whereby to govern and guide the town henceforth. Percivant smiled in his mustache as he read, a smile of scholarly relish. He could see in his mind's eye that meeting, the stark jack-booted colonists and the brown insistent savages. King Mosh, he had spoken out well for his people and faith, even against Captain Scadlock, who undoubtedly was the chief of the colony's armed forces. And the minister, Mr. Horton, had shown rare tact and liberality, perhaps good man. He had hoped for converts among those Indians on whose behalf he spoke. But that hope had been in vain, Percivant saw, as he read further in the records. Less than a year later, there had been a fight, and it had gone against the Indians. The same clerk wrote, and a searching party following the tracks of Captain Scadlock upon the second day after his vanishment did trace him to that hill, which the Indians do call Guntola, that is the Hungry Hill. Hello, muttered Percivant half aloud. That's the hill back of Pitt's place and did find him at the mouth of the cave near the summit, and he had perished miserably of many small wounds so thick upon him that no inch of his skin remained whole, nor did any jot of his blood remain unto him. And the Indians swore by their false gods that he came to his death for failing to greet the hare, rather pursuing and slaying hares upon the hill, which we took as meaning to say that they themselves had slain the captain, wherefore falling to our arms. The remainder of the account was unsavory and dealt with a one-sided conflict. The dead Indians were scalped, it seems, and the prisoners taken, all hanged. A few survived and escaped the carnage. That had finished the savages in the vicinity. 
Only the name of the hill and the rabbit greeting remained to memorialize them. At this moment, the clerk came in and tapped his shoulder. Judge, he said, here's Morgan Pitts come to find you. Percivant looked up, his big forefinger marking the place on the old sheet of paper. Pitts came in, his eyes wide with serious wonder. Judge Percivant, he said, Mr. Ransom hasn't come back. Hasn't come back from where? He went hunting for a rabbit. Simmons made a choking sound of protest, and Percivant sprang to his feet, quick as a cat for all his bulk. Hunting for a rabbit? He promised me. Pitts nodded glumly. Yes, sir, I know he did, but when you left, Mr. Ransom, he took his gun and went out. Said he'd be back in fifteen minutes, but... The man's lips were quivering. But he ain't. I think, Judge, you better come. The old records of Crispinville, telling of superstition and pioneering and grim battle, had cracked and crumbled in Percivant's clenching hands. He laid down the remains. Have you brought your car, Mr. Pitts? All right, we'll drive back together. The house was still empty when they got there. Percivant moved away through the backyard, across a meadow, and among brush and small trees at the foot of the hillside. It was as bright and hot as a tropical seashore. The judge's blue eyes had found and followed the trail of Ransom's tennis shoes. Pitts followed just behind. It's bad stuff hunting rabbits, he chattered. Folks around here don't believe in it, and when people don't believe, it's best to string along with such beliefs, I agree, finished Percivant for him. Look, Mr. Pitts, he found a rabbit trail here, fresh. They could see that Ransom had squatted down above the pattern of little paw prints in the leaf mold. His toes only made deep depressions. And beside them was the narrow oval where he had rested the gunstock. Then he had risen and followed the game slantwise up the hill. Percivant and Pitts went up after him, through dragging belts and tangles of brush, some of it thorny. Pitts spoke again. Look, Judge. He pointed with a knobby old forefinger to a whole clutter of tracks. More rabbits! Mr. Ransom's hunting a mess of them! The judge's shaggy head shook. I'm afraid not. See here? Some of the paw prints fall over Mr. Ransom's shoe marks. This bunch, flock, whatever you call a number of rabbits, it came along later. Mr. Ransom is hunting only that first one that made the lone trail. I see, said Pitts softly. I see, and these other rabbits are 
hunting Mr. Ransom. It was hotter than they had thought as they pushed through one more clump of brambly growth and came to where hunters and hunted had met. They had not the time nor the wish to read more than the essentials of the story, written in large tracts and small, upon the soft spurned earth. Percivant began talking swiftly, pointing here and there. Look, Ransom stopped and probably aimed his gun. He was looking yonder, perhaps at that dark hollow place among those vine-grown saplings. The rabbit must have stopped there. He crossed over and peered. Yes, see, the tracks were turned toward Ransom. It stopped and turned on its heels to look at him. Like it was mocking him, said Pitts and swallowed hard. Percivant looked at the leaves behind the tracks. They were cut to pieces by shot. Ransom must have fired both barrels at that rabbit as it sat up to gaze at him. And then Pitts was down on one knee. They swarmed over him as he fired, he cried shakily. Look, Judge, they rushed him from behind right here. Percivant made a step and bent to pick up something from a patch of leafy weeds. His gun, he said and snapped open the breech. Both barrels were fired. He must have thrown it at them. Then he was unarmed. He returned to where Pitts kneeled. The flurry of tracks seemed to say that Ransom had fallen as under the impact of many missiles. What those missiles were could be deduced from the strength of certain hind-leg marks, telling of how rabbits had sprung straight upward and at the face or chest. The gun still in his hand, Percivant stooped to make out what had happened to Ransom then. Here were handprints, deeply driven, as the weight had been supported upon the palms. Here was the scrape of a dragged knee and another, with repetitions beyond. Yes, Ransom had crept upon his hands and knees, stunned, wretched, driven. For at either flank of his trail were the trails of his little adversaries, herding and harrying him toward the dark opening among the vines where he had seen and fired upon the quarry that was really a decoy. Poor Mr. Ransom, Pitts was saying. He should have obeyed the law. You've got to respect things like that or... Stay behind me, commanded Percivon and bent, thrusting with the muzzle of the shotgun into the space among the vines. Within was empty gloom, for here the hill rose abruptly under a masking of herbage, and in it was a cave. Guntola, the hungry hill, 
remembered Percivant. Yes, as Pitts had said, this place looked like an open, starved mouth, a loon-shaped hole with a flat rim of rock above and another below like gaping lips. And something was wedged in that mouth-like cavern. He forced himself to touch it. His fingers closed on a slack, damp wrist. With a heave and a scrape, he dragged the body into view. Yes, it was Ransom, or what had been Ransom. Percivant knew him by the contours of that pounded, lacerated head, by the leanness of the blood-blotched body inside chopped-up rags. Pitts whimpered as the thing came into the light. Poor Mr. Ransom, he said again. Now I know how, oh. Percivant whirled like a top at that final gasp of horror. He saw, too, what Spencer had seen. The spaces among the bushes along their back trail were full of rabbits, all lean and gray, with black and white blazings on legs and ear tips, and all a trifle larger than ordinary. Every eye in that horde was turned upon the two men in the eyes of meat-eating animals. They were an army, moving concertedly and purposefully upon the judge and pits, who stood cut off with their backs to the cave. Percivant's big fist tightened on Ransom's shotgun. He would not throw it, he told himself at once. Club, its metal-shod butt, would smash these little assailants to rags. But Pitts was trying another weapon. With eyes and outstretched hands, he addressed himself to the foremost of the rabbits, the one that moved cautiously but steadily ahead of the press, like an officer leading troops in an orderly advance. He spoke audibly and with a tremble of fear. Howdy, Mr. Rabbit! There was a momentary pause in the oncoming torrent of fur. A little Edie showed, then a parting in the ranks. They were making a way for Pitts to retreat through them, and he needed not a moment to make up his mind. He fairly darted along that open lane, which closed behind him. The expanse of fuzzy backs and upturned green eyes re-solidified, and above it Pitts looked back at Percivant. Better say the words, he advised huskily. They're closing in on you. They converged slowly and smoothly, flowing like a puddle of grease, but grease scummed over with fur and green-black eyes, sprouting a meadow of ears. Percivant lifted the clubbed shotgun and set himself to strike. The leader rabbit sprang suddenly at him. Percivant swung the gun as a batter strikes at a ball, 
he could not miss. But the weapon swished thinly in the air, and the little sinewy body struck him at the base of the throat. A moment later, more rabbits were springing at him. A dozen, a score, hundreds. His flailing with the gun did not find a single mark. He swayed under the bombardment, but kept his feet. He was stronger and bulkier than Ransom. He would take more battering to bring down. Say the words, Judge, Pitt's voice pleaded with him from beyond. They ain't real rabbits. They'll finish you. Fighting, clawing at the rain of buffets, Percivant found his mind turning from the struggle to consideration of something else. What had the Indian, King Mosh, called the rabbit? A totemon. Strange word. But with a familiar sound. Suddenly he saw blue expanse fringed with green. The sky among the treetops looked into his face, for he had come down upon his back. The rabbits had felled him. They were swarming around and upon him, their feet striking like great raindrops, incessantly and with precision, a rhythm that sapped his strength and his consciousness again and again on the same places. How could he escape these airy blows and kicks? There seemed one way to crawl along, but it would lead to the cave where Ransom had been. And once caught there, they'd have him. They'd dance upon him forever and forever until he died torn and bled to death by uncountable strokes. It would be like the falling of water upon a Chinese victim of the old drop death. Say the words, beseeched Pitts tearfully, his voice faint as an echo. Say the words, howdy. A totemon. The term meant something sacred to the Indians. And the minister, Mr. Horton, had gone on record as saying that the honest faith of savages could be respected, must be respected. Somehow he got upon his feet and lifted his hands as Pitts had done. Howdy, he mumbled thickly. Howdy, Mr. Rabbit and he stumbled and staggered away. Nothing prevented him. Pitt's hand caught his arm, supporting him. He was safe, being led downhill. Who'll believe, he was saying to himself. Who'll believe? Don't worry, Judge, Pitts replied. We're all right now. And this has happened before. All the folks say that the rabbits kill people near that cave. When some stranger drops out of sight, the folks go looking for them and bury them. 
It ain't thought strange anymore. I'll get a couple of men from town to help me bring back Mr. Ransom. Percivant was content to leave it at that. Later, he would write and make an inquiry of Dr. Trowbridge, de Grandin's friend and fellow scholar of the occult. Trowbridge's letter came after the judge had returned to New York. My dear Percivant, the meaning of the word atodeman should betray itself because of the familiarity of its corruption, totem. It's Algonquin, and as well as I can establish, means a local sacrosanctity, generally embodied in some animal. A tribe or clan or community would claim that such animals were in reality the reincarnated spirits of dead ancestors, and full of supernatural power for good or evil. I was sorry to hear about Ransom's death. Why are you so mysterious? De Grandin joins me in inviting you out to Huntingdon to tell us about it. We have a strange story or two of our own that might intrigue you. Yours, etc., and Trowbridge's almost indecipherable signature wound it up. Percivant laid down the letter and reasoned himself out of any sense of defeat. He had wanted to respect the custom from the first, had blamed Ransom for defying it. Mr. Horton, the long-dead minister of Crispinville, had felt the same. We had precedent in that the first missionaries to Britain did respect and observe certain festivals. It might be heathen to greet a rabbit, yet it was part of formal and sincere religion. And when you were in Crispinville, you should do what the Crispin villagers did. Judge Percivant decided not to feel fouled by his experience. Only he would never look at a rabbit again and keep his heart from thumping nervously. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Half Haunted. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.